The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. We're not going to really follow the um, that exercise sheet too closely. Um, it's mostly I'm mostly handing it out as a um, something to take away from the talk, and a little bit later we might we might look at the uh, the Noble Eightfold Path schematic on the back as a reminder. Now I'm going to give my name and present my credentials in a minute. Um, but before we get into personal narrative stuff on my part, I'd like to ask a couple of questions to reflect on. One is, in what sense, uh, in the past 30 minutes, have we created community without speech? How have we communicated to each other without words in the past 30 minutes? Is there a richness that you can feel there? A, um, a sense of connection? Um, have we made promises to each other? Have we acted ethically towards each other? Without words? Some people say that society is created through communication. They usually mean communication through words. That we build our shared sense of meaning and community. Our, our policies and our technologies and our, our systems for getting along through words. So, I think it's really helpful to every now and then question this assumption we have about communication, especially speech communication, as a, as a community builder. And I, I know that in my case, this is really brought home every year after I finish a 10-day silent sit with Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters. We've just spent, the whole group of meditators has spent 10 days um, in silence with each other, eating with each other, um, walking carefully around each other, um, doing yogi jobs, keeping the place going in practical ways and without a word. And then on the last day, when noble silence is broken, there's a bittersweet moment, for me anyway, when we all get together and sit at tables and share a meal and start talking to each other. And the sweet part is you get to learn about the people that, you're, that you've been in retreat with. Um, and there's certainly an element of connection there, but at the same time, I, certain, I noticed throughout that lunch as we share that we're actually growing further apart because our narratives, we start telling our personal stories, you know, and, and, um, and we start classifying others based on the stories they're telling us. And a lot of times things that we had thought or even 
uh, attributes or traits that we projected onto another person turn out to have been totally false, and we either promote them or demote them in our mind, you know, and the priorities shift, and everything starts to, like, get into the standard categories, and uh, there's a loss there and uh, in some way. So there's a, there was a, and what was, what was actually creating that sense of community uh, throughout all those days, I would say it's silence, and it was the richness of what was being communicated in other ways than through speech. During, and, and to me, that's precious. I think there should be more silence like that in our world and in our own hearts. Okay, now, getting to my personal narrative now. <laughs> and you'll probably feel less close to me after I, <laughs> I divulge some of these particulars. But um, my name's Doug McGill. I live in Rochester, Minnesota, just down Highway 52 a bit. And um, uh, I, I run a uh, meditation center down there, the Rochester Meditation Group. You're all very warmly invited to come anytime you're down there. Um, and I've been coming to Common Ground for about six years. The um, And now I actually want to give you some bullet points from my professional resume because they actually relate to the topic of tonight. Um, and that is that for about 33 years or so I've been a professional journalist and <clears throat> it's been that work that has really attracted me to the topic of tonight First of all, it attracted me to the Dharma, and then after I was in the Dharma for a while, it really attracted me to the topic of right speech, or as it's sometimes called, skillful speech. In fact, um, it had been a, it was a uh, growing sense of um, unease about my practice of journalism and the way that I shaped and shared words with the world that in recent years has driven me further into the Dharma and at least for the time being, further away from journalism. And uh, so I thought I'd share a little bit of that story tonight with you. Um, again, not to um, you know, present my story as anything special, but it is a, it is a story in the Dharma, and um, it, it, it is one largely a story about skillful speech, which is one of the steps, on, uh, the Buddha says, on the path to the end of unhappiness. Uh, one of the steps on the path to the end of suffering. Um, <clears throat> I became a journalist in uh, 1979 when I graduated from college, and I, uh, my, I was filled with idealism and with incredible curiosity about the world, which is really the, uh, been the fuel, has been the fuel for my being a journalist. I have a certain amount of righteous feeling um, that also powers my journalism, a sense of wanting to tell the truth, especially the truth to power, uh, to stand up for people who don't, don't have a voice. That's, that's a part of my motivation to be a journalist. But so, too, is just a pure curiosity about how things work. You know, the same kind of thing that might drive you if you're a scientist or a teacher or something like that. I, my first job was here in the Twin Cities um, for the uh, State Watch, which is a Ralph Nader publication out of the University of Minnesota. I was the editor of that for a year. Then I was a freelancer for the Twin Cities, Twin Cities Reader, which is a forerunner of City Pages. And then I moved to New York City, and for 10 years I was a staff reporter at the New York Times, where I covered 
a number of beats over the years, um, primarily general city news, culture news, and then for one year at the end, I, I was a business reporter. Then I, um, then throughout the um, the 1990s, I was a editor and bureau chief for Bloomberg News in London and in Tokyo and in Hong Kong. And I moved back to Rochester in 2000. And since 2000, I've been a freelance writer based out of uh, Rochester. Um, and I've mostly been writing for the past 10 years about uh, immigration and human rights issues here in the state of Minnesota. Now, <clears throat> the way it can, all that story connects with the Dharma is that um, somewhere around 2000, um, you know, I had the same kind of complex of issues that I think drives many people to common ground into the Dharma um, that aren't, weren't right speech necessarily, but there's a sense of, um, you know, we're getting, in my case, getting older. What am I passing on to the younger generation? Feeling uh, a certain unskillfulness in that and wanting to pass along more skillful habits of mind than I actually had. A sense of stress and overwhelm, a kind of existential anxiety, I suppose. Um, grief from the loss of loved ones. Those were all, you know, you get older, these things come up. And we get into a, a search for something that, that's really uh, meaningful and profound and helpful. So those were there, but so too in that mix that I just mentioned in terms of what drove me to the Dharma was a, as a growing disillusionment and dissatisfaction with how I was shaping and sharing my words with the world through the conventions of journalism. And um, I'll give you some specifics on that, but before I do that, let's just review what skillful speech is according to the, according to the Buddha. Skillful speech, as I mentioned, is one of eight steps on the so-called Noble Eightfold Path. The Buddha represents that the Noble Eightfold Path are um, steps that one takes, not necessarily in sequence. They're, it's kind of a Mobius strip, you know. Uh, one feeds into the other, but you do them all skillfully, or maybe even just do one skillfully, and you can go all the way to enlightenment, meaning liberation from suffering, liberation from our conditioning, that constantly, in a way that we can't control, puts us into situations of stress and suffering. So these are all, uh, all along the way, there are steps that help us to get out of that bind. Um, skillful speech is right in the middle of the path. Um, it's combined with um, skillful action, wholesome and unwholesome action, unwholesome action, and skillful and unskillful livelihood. Skillful speech, skillful action, skillful livelihood. Now, as for skillful speech, there's a lot written in the Pali scriptures about what skillful speech is. That's what the Buddha said it was. There's a lot of commentary and other stories about skillful speech in the Pali scriptures by the Buddha and his disciples. Then there's a lot of commentary, both in the Theravada tradition, the Tibetan tradition, the Zen tradition. And now today there's a whole lot of proliferating talk about skillful speech in, by modern commentators as well, relating to gossiping and the problems of the modern media, overwhelmed from just listening to all the garbage on the media, wanting to guard our sense doors against toxic speech. There's a lot of that going on. I was in a media group here at Common Ground a few weeks ago. Every, it was a, a media, people in that group committed to a media fast, 
And then the first time we gathered, we all told our stories about why we wanted to be in a media fast, and it sounded like an AA meeting. <laughs> it sounded they were stories of addiction, every single one of them, a sense of being addicted to something toxic. So skillful speech is really in our society now, the hunger for it. So the Buddha says skillful speech is attained by avoiding four essential types of unskillful speech. And those four are, number one, avoiding dishonest or lying speech. It is said that a, 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 a person who becomes a Buddha can break all of the precepts except one. If he breaks it one, if he breaks this one one time, he can't become a Buddha, and that is the precept against lying and dishonesty. Every other one, you can break once or twice and still get up there. <laughs> but don't be dishonest, or you never make it. So that has a real special uh, uh, priority to it on the speech. Um, then there's a middle category of two types of speech to avoid. Um, one is malicious speech, which is speech which is consciously intended to harm another person or to divide people one from another. And the key thing there is the intention too. So you, you might be sitting at home and saying, I want to say something, but I want to make sure that it really stings. You know? Or And it's even hard for me to say this because I can feel unwholesome things arising when I mention it, but it's there. If you actually, if you're actually thinking about saying something that will divide one person from another person, husband from wife, wife from child, um, father from child, you know, brother from brother, sister from any of that, that's malicious speech because you're planning something bad. So avoid that. That's the second thing to avoid: malicious speech. Uh, third uh, type of speech to avoid is similar, but it's but it's different in one crucial respect: is harsh speech which means speech that hurts other people, might even divide other people, but it's not, you didn't necessarily sit down and think about it and intend to do it. This type of speech is karmically less um, freighted than uh, malicious speech. It's still bad, but the karmic effects aren't as bad. Um, it's, it's, you know, if you're angry and you lash out at somebody, say something harmful, next thing you know, your son or daughter crying or or you're, you're feeling bad, you know. Oh, damn, I didn't mean to do that. That's harsh speech. You want to avoid that. You want to be conscious ahead of time so you don't do that. And then the, and then the fourth type of speech to avoid is idle speech, which is, which is speech that, has, that serves no positive purpose, especially no, it doesn't advance you at all towards the goal of the end of stress and unhappiness. Um, now, basically, as a journalist, I was finding that I was finding big problems in all four categories in my daily work. First at the New York Times, then at Bloomberg in a big way. Um, and also, in recent years, even writing about human rights and, um, and immigration, same thing. Um, now, so I'll just briefly mention, you know, as a reporter at the New York Times, I'll say, I, I, I never consciously lied or intended to lie. 
I was never in that category, quite honestly. In fact, just the opposite. But I frequently had to interview people who were lying through their teeth, you know, trying to deceive. And I would pass along what they were saying and try to get on the front page with my article. You know? And a lot of times I wasn't given the column inches to really say all that I knew about all that stuff that, hey, by the way, reader, this is all a crock. You know, I, the conventions of journalism weren't giving me, at least at that point, were not giving me the ability to get that all in there. And so I just felt like I was in a system that was requiring me to in effect, lie. Um, malicious speech and harsh speech, the same thing. Public figures, um, celebrities, lots of people that you write about, um, you know, pass along that kind of language. And it's very tempting for journalists to use a lot of that type of language because it, it, it works in the competitive marketplace. You know, people who say bland, kind, helpful, compassionate things. <laughs> it's hard to get them on page one sometimes. <clears throat> and so I definitely found myself, you know, reaching into, you know, pots of words that I felt were charged in ways I didn't feel quite comfortable with, but I was putting them in there just so I could get in the papers, stay on page one, and so on. Um, I think when I wrote about cultural issues, that's probably when I felt I was most engaged in idle speech. You know, it's like there's nothing particularly wrong with a, a celebrity profile per se. There's nothing evil in that. The only problem is it's like all the time you spend on it, what could you have been spent doing something else? You know, same thing when you read those articles. It's a, in the language of business, it's an opportunity cost, big time to um, both write and read those types of articles. So these were the kind of um, binds that I was getting into. And um, you know, it was just a crisis of conscience that's just been slowly unfolding over the years. And I wrote something at the beginning, which kind of made me laugh, so I'll just read it. Since 2000, I've been a freelance journalist writing about immigrant and human rights mainly. But I've also been very gradually writing less and meditating more visiting common ground and going to retreats, and now I'm at the point where I have no idea how I'll ever make a living again. <laughs> so, who's giving the Donna talk tonight? <laughs> Being in touch. So there's a writer named David Loy, who's a Buddhist, and he frequently writes about um, a lot of interesting topics in the Dharma. He has a formulation which, in which he says, you know, first of all, he cites the Buddhist teaching that the root of all suffering is greed, hatred, and delusion. But that's it. All of our unhelpful, harmful human tendencies come out of Greed, hatred, and delusion, which is, you know, attachment to things we like, wanting to smash and kill and cease to exist the things we don't like, and um, delusion, which is just an ignorance about the way things really are. Ultimately, the, the, main, the, the main one is ignorance, and out of that, greed and hatred and 
so far. This is the way things proliferate. Anyway, he says that we're in a pickle, societally speaking, because our system of capitalism and consumerism institutionalizes greed. The military, industrial complex, institutionalizes hatred. And the media institutionalizes delusion. And, uh, and then if you were to make a, a schematic, there's a lot of arrows that are kind of crossing between those circles, too, in big ways. I think that's a fair and pretty helpful formulation. It really states our predicament awfully well, I think. And then, you know, trying to find our, our way in it. I'll just mention one or two other things, and then when we have five minutes for... Um, for um, question and answer. Um, it's a little bit of a shortened version this morning so that we can do wholesome things like singing with our children. Um, in 2004, you know, I was this this my this little crisis that's been unfolding for me uh, took another went to another level when I started going on 10-day annual retreats with Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters. And what I discovered on those retreats is that the essential problem, and you know, in retrospect, it looks like common sense, but it, it wasn't that the New York Times was making me write this way, or that Bloomberg News was making me write that way, or anything like that, or that I was even per se that I was caught in a, the capitalist, consumerist, military-industrial complex. So you know, it wasn't. It wasn't really that in a sense. The problem was, and I'm finding as I walk around in my 10, 10 days of silent retreat, it's all up here now. The conditioning. Okay, it might have come from all of those places and sources, but the ultimate reality is the conditioning is up here to write in, a, write in ways that are motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion. I think personally, it's a little bit of a relief to find, um, you know, of all the problems that I have, I'm not a compulsive liar, I discovered. You know, that's nice. That's not going on up here too much. But there are other things that are pretty unhelpful. Um, for example, and I, I really noticed this. What I really noticed on that retreat, besides the, the fact that the root of it all is up here, I would see this manifest in certain ways that are embarrassing to relate. But what, you know, how are we going to get anywhere unless we talk about these things? Um, so those of you who've been on long retreats know that on the last day, there's also often something called the closing circle, where you share... Um, you share a few minutes worth of what your retreat has been like, you know, and how it's changed you or what insights you had. And what I noticed was my mind was starting to compose my closing circle speech from the first 45 minute set and the 10 day set. Oh my gosh. That is sad. Um, and also, you know, I'd, also I'd be, I'd, I, you know, don't rush off and tell Stephen Kamala, but on a lot of the walking periods between the sitting periods, I'm running back to my room to write down notes, thinking that I'll write up a memoir, you know, a poignant memoir of my retreat experience sometime in the future. <laughs> I'm a compulsive note taker, and a lot of people have noticed, you know, during the Dharma talks too, I fill up books, and then. Um, and then, of course, before my check-ins, you know, I'm actually honing specific sentences and words, choices, and all that just to get it right and perfect. And so, 
for a long time I was pretty harsh on myself for all that, but then I loosened up because, you know, all I'm, all it's, all I'm really saying there is this, that's the way my mind works. I mean, it's a, it's a compulsively speech-making and speech-editing mind that got up here. And, and on this I'll conclude, and we can have, um, yeah, maybe ten minutes of, top, of Q&A after I finish on this, but what I discovered then is that skillful speech is my main portal to the Dharma. It is my main connection to the teachings. I think for other people, um, mindfulness might be their main connection. You know, there are other people far more skilled and adept than I at getting on a cushion and getting into a calm, relaxed state pretty quick. There's positives and negatives to go with that, but um, other people, it might be livelihood, or it might be um, it might be a connection portal, or uh, uh, skillful effort. For me, it's speech because it's it's the, what my mind kind of goes to by default: is speech making and speech editing, trying to make everything perfect in my world by seeing and editing things right. So. People will love me so I can make a living, so I can be understood and not be, feel alone. It's fear-driven. It's like, oh, if I can only write something or say something perfect, then everything, everything perfect will happen in my life. This is, this is the delusion. This is a core delusion for me, which I need to dissolve and have been working on over the years. And um, the, um, the handout, one of the things you'll see there, and it's been a support for me because in, in the Western world, the, the Dharma has come to the West. It's very, very meditation-oriented. Not so much oriented to the middle part of the, of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is about right speech, right action, right livelihood. The more, the more ethical practices don't get as much attention in the West as meditation, which is the third part of the path. Okay, But for me, I've found that the middle part of the path, but especially speech, really helps. And as soon as I gave myself permission to basically meditate on the, my mind stream of speech making, I found a very consistent thing and very consistently present thing to be aware of. You know, and uh, and that's all you really need to do. All you need for meditation is to have something to consistently stay on. And then, but and for me, occasionally, if I'm lucky, it leads to wisdom because that's the area where I'm primarily or largely unskillful. Is right there is the speech making thing. Um, I did a blog post that is going to be posted to Common Ground um, blog, I think. Um, that, that describes that in, in more detail, but that is a big meditation for me, and I've actually compared my urge to speak is like breathing for me. It comes in waves, and then it dissipates. Like, oh, I can't wait to say something, and then a few minutes later, a few seconds later, oh, I guess I really don't want to say that anymore. Ooh, right? It's like it has a primitive force to it. I can watch it come and go, and I can watch words that I really want to say come up, sparkle, like shine like neon, and then, and then I go, oh, I really didn't need to say that. It wasn't so so strong. I could have just held my silence, and then I did it. I watch it come and go. 
I watched the urge to speak arise and disappear. Makes me feel calm and relaxed to do that for a while. So, we actually do have now six minutes, I guess, before the kids come in. And I thought if any, anyone had any questions or comments on skillful speech, we could. Yeah. Yeah. Could you say your name? Oh, Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Unskillful speech modes or something? Yeah, right? That, that harsh speech wasn't kind of as bad on the as negative on the continuum as malicious speech. Right. Certainly, you know, there's a ton of malicious speech around, and I obviously know why that's very bad or negative. Mm-hmm. But I would, my first reaction when you said that, well, knowing nothing about this, but um, was how prevalent the harsh I would guess more people are harsh than, than malicious. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think of family life or, mm-hmm. you know, the, they oh, so-and-so's having a bad day, oh, well, ignore them, or at work. And it just seems that it, in the end, that would cause more damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the prevalence of it. Right. Yeah. And what it does. And the impact of it. Right, this is the sheer bulk of it. Yeah. I think that's a good insight. And I think that that one of the conditions of uh, of our modern world today, the mass media, was not present in the Buddha's day. And I dare say if there was a Buddha present today or if he was here, he, he would talk about how the media amplifies kinds of speech, you know, to levels that are really very unhealthy in their total effect, as you said. Yeah. Yes, and what's your name? Hi, Mary. Thank you for the talk this morning. Just uh, adding to that, I think that there are many disciplines and professions that also reward harsh speech, being judgmental, critical, critical thought. And I um, shared the experience after um, meditating uh, with commitment for several years. And the question of will I be able to stay in my work and and help, and then try just trusting and having faith that I'll be able to bring this to a profession that is often very critical and judgmental. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and I also want to share that I, I had an experience this week, which was really lovely. A, a woman from this center did a, a loving kindness meditation, and I had the experience of how ethical conduct shapes wisdom or intention and view. And I've often thought of it the opposite way with thoughts arising and being aware of trying to um, kindle or foster um, skillful thinking and mm-hmm. skillful views. And I actually had the experience this week of how um, loving kindness and kind words uh, inspires skillful thought. Mm-hmm. And the way that can go by just practicing kind words and loving words to ourselves and to each other, it begins to bring us into that category of wisdom. So in the way in which those kind of work backwards. Terrific insight. Couldn't say it better. I think that too that the if I were to add anything to that, it would be I I I would like to encourage more attention on the middle three parts of this path, on the ethics part of the path. I think there are a lot of reasons why in the West, in America, a lot of us 
have a, a, a kind of inbuilt skepticism of that part of the path because it sounds like the commandments to us. It sounds like that, that part of our experience with, with religion that kind of turned us off to religion. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt do that. It sounds like ex, an external way to change our spirit, which for many of us has not worked. You just elucidated how, if it's skillfully done, it does change our spirit. They are, you know, acting ethically and being mindful are totally symbiotic. If done skillfully, and there's a whole art to that. But as you, you just mentioned one way. Train yourself to just say kind words. They might, might even seem a little dry at first. They might <laughs> feel a little bit insincere at first. But just do it for a while. And what do you know? Then, then kind feelings start to arise, by golly. That's a, that's a skillful experiment to try. Yeah. Hi, Scott. Hey, Scott. Um, I know a few weeks ago here, and I you spoke afterwards that one. Yeah. And one thing to me about Christ's speech is, I, I would, the counterpart to that is the right listening, you might say. Mm -hmm. uh, understanding, compassion, uh, listening, and understanding uh, when you're listening, and courteous listening. Um, I know people, I'm sure we all do, where you're saying something and you can see they're so busy formulating thought and jumping with what they want to say, but they don't even hear what you're saying. And it's caused me, because the people I've known in my life like that, to be a better listener. And I think to, to get that point of right speech, we almost have, I think we almost have to be good listeners as part of that. Um, Absolutely. Uh, one of the practices that's on the handout is called Listen Deeply, and it's part of a series of exercises given by the insight meditation teacher, Gregory Kramer, um, where he points out that listening deeply in the way that you're talking about is, is in, in essence, meditation. What are we doing when we're sitting mindfully, paying attention to the way things are right now, other than if you'll allow the metaphor just slightly, we're listening, paying attention to what's happening in the present moment. So as you're listening to another person, you can literally switch on right at work with your kids or whatever. You can switch on mindfulness, which means not just listening to the content of what they're saying, but being attuned to what's happening in your body when they're saying that. Is something that your colleague or friend or child or brother or whatever What's happening in, in here from the bottom to the top? What kinds of speeches are you preparing in your mind while they're talking? All the while maintaining a commitment to hold, to not react, to just give yourself the assignment of being aware during that period, see what arises and what falls away during that period, and be kind of just maximally attentive to the way things are while someone else is talking. That actually lays the groundwork for a much more skillful reply, a much more skillful eventual reply, whether that reply is in the form of speech or not. And I'm just going to tell one little tiny story before we bring the kids in. But a friend of mine and a member of the Rochester Meditation Group got into an argument with his kid who went AWOL one day. He was a teenager, and all throughout, he was just gone. 
And all, up until 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, he was gone. He was like a 13 or 14-year-old kid. So the dad, of course, and the mom were both frightfully worried all day long. And, and I said, okay, okay, if he's in a car crash, I guess we'll spend the rest of the evening you know, at the hospital. But if he's okay and he comes home, I'm going to give him a whooping. You know? But wait, would that have been the most mindful and helpful thing to do? Unload on the kid when he comes home. Because my friend was, having, was preparing a lot of the speeches, the corrective speeches. So what did he do when the kid finally showed up at 9.30? He, he walked up and hugged him. He said, glad you're home. We're going to talk about consequences tomorrow. I just thought, Rick, what a great job you did today. Good parenting. So, you know, because he had been mindful and held everything. And then he actually had the, the gumption to carry through. The first response being skillful silence with right action, putting speech aside for the timing. So I really appreciate that, that story that Rick told me. Would that be a good note on which to invite the children in? Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.